Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 10, The Lost Birds of Paradise. So last time, we met the Birds of Paradise, those wildly beautiful, skirt-wearing, crest-flailing, wire-brushing, black-hole-impersonating birds that inhabit the jungles of New Guinea. As we saw, they are as cuckoo-cachoo crazy as they are glamorous. And we started to explore how they got that way thanks to sexual selection as opposed to natural selection. Quick recap, in natural selection, traits evolve that help an animal to survive. In sexual selection, traits evolve that help an animal to get laid. In the case of the birds of paradise, this is what caused the males to be so preposterously plumed. Preposterous. Plumed. But if you cast your mind back to the last episode, oh, by the way, you should really listen to the last one before you listen to this one because it's not going to make sense otherwise. So go and do that. If you cast your mind back to the last episode, you may recall something I said. Cue the flashback music! Currently, there are 42 recognised species in the Bird of Paradise family. Now, I have to use the words currently and recognised because it's complicated. It's always complicated. Ah, memories. Well... Today, we're going to dig into some of that complication, and we can start by looking at that number. You see, 42, aside from being the answer to life, the universe, and a... Wait a second. A bird's the answer to life, the universe, and everything? It all makes sense now. While there are 42 recognised species in the family Paradisiae, the number has a nasty habit of fluctuating. You see, a couple of years ago, there were only 39 birds in the family. A couple of years before that, it was 38. A couple of years before that, it was 41. You go all the way back to 1888. Oh, sorry, I mean, you go all the way back to the year 1888. When John Gould published his study on the birds of New Guinea, there were just 22. But by 1930, the number had jumped to nearly 60. Now... The question is, if there's only 42 or so today, what happened to the other 20? They are what is sometimes known as the Lost Birds of Paradise. So what in the name of the great Argus pheasant is going on? Well, first, let's clear up what we mean when we say the family Paradisiae. I'm doing air quotes there if you couldn't tell. What do you need to gain membership to the Paradisiae Club? Well, thankfully, for once, when we say that a bird belongs to the Bird of Paradise family, this actually has a clearly defined meaning. And to say that they're a family is even technically correct. Technically correct. The best kind of correct. If we turn to our old friend, Taxonomy, we will find the Birds of Paradise occupy a branch of the taxonomic hierarchy known as the family level. The levels below are the genus and species, and the level above are the order and class. So we are class Aves, order Passiformes, family Paradisiae. 
So what does that mean? As an example, the family group that we people belong to are the great apes. Gorilla, orangutan, chimps, and ourselves. Class mammalia, order primate, family, the great apes. So we're looking at a group of birds that are as related to each other as we are to, say, an orangutan. I hope that made sense. So why has the membership of this specific branch of the bird family tree been so volatile? Did they introduce a no-shirt-no-service policy and a couple of birds downright refused to button up? Oh, if only it was that simple. First, in 1888, John Gould listed only 22 birds in his study for the simple reason that they hadn't all been discovered. The last bird of paradise to be found was the ribbon-tailed Astrapia in the 1930s. As mentioned in the last episode, New Guinea is a bugger out of the way, so it took a while to track them all down. What really did it though, the way we went from 20 to 60 species, has less to do with ornithological exploration and more to do with high fashion. During the late 19th and early 20th century, a little something called the feather trade was in full swing. You see, well-to-do society ladies had decided that the season's most desirable accessory were outrageous hats adorned with the most ostentatious avian plumes. Every year, from all corners of the world, birds were slaughtered, plucked, and their feathers shipped off to the milliners of Paris and London. By the turn of the 20th century, approximately 5 million birds a year were being butchered for hats. Many countless birds were exploited, but the birds of paradise, with their unique glittering, luminous plumes were especially prized. And I get it, I take one look at a protea with their little tutu skirt and I think I want that bird on my head, can someone just staple it to my head? And I wasn't alone, the ladies of Europe lined up in their droves to get the fanciest hat money could buy. So the story of how many new birds of paradise were discovered ended up following a similar script. First, an unusual skin would come across the table of a plume trader out in the colonies. Being familiar with the common skins they dealt in, the smart traders knew when they had something rare and possibly expensive on their hands. For the right price, they would sell their skin to a museum or eager collector. From there, a young ornithologist, hungry for fame, yes, there are famous ornithologists, I promise it's a thing, Hungry for fame, they would snap up the skin, race to publish a description, and so win the privilege to name the hitherto unknown bird. Now, when I say the skins that were coming out of the feather trade were rare or unusual, I'm not kidding. In most cases, only one or two specimens of any particular species were ever found, with no one ever really observing the living bird in its natural environment. This made the skins all the more coveted by those hungry ornithologists. And there was none more hungry than Lionel Walter Rothschild, that's second Baron Rothschild, to his friends. Now, for some people in the audience, that name might have lit a light bulb or two. The Rothschilds were, and still are, one of the most famous and wealthiest families in the world, having amassed a huge fortune through the lucrative business of banking. Now, Walter lived the English dream, in the sense that he was born rich and remained so. 
But unlike the rest of his family who were interested in high finance, Walter was more interested in biology. He used his fabulous wealth to create a veritable menagerie. You could say he was a touch eccentric. He really liked to collect exotic animals. He used to turn heads when he drove his zebra-drawn carriage around the streets of London. He also loved collecting dead things. Within his vast museum, he held 300,000 bird skins, 200,000 bird's eggs, 2.25 million butterflies, 30,000 beetles, as well as thousands of mammals, reptiles, and fish. He owned the largest private zoological collection ever amassed by a single person. So why do I bring him up? Because many of the lost birds I'm about to mention ended up in his collection. Of course, this probably wasn't the fate of every rare or unusual bird of paradise that got swept up in the feather trade. It is interesting, although fruitless to speculate, as to just how many undescribed birds from the jungles of New Guinea ended up in ladies' hats. But before we fruitlessly speculate further, I want to stamp out a thought you might be having. No, the feather trade is not the answer as to what happened to these lost birds. That is, we didn't drive them to extinction through the feather trade. I mean, we don't know for sure, but it's unlikely. And that's maybe unexpected, because it seems like the obvious answer. We're missing 20 birds, we were killing 5 million a year, for the vital purpose of making fancy hats. So it seems likely we could have wiped them out. But the birds of paradise had a couple of odd traits that may have saved their bacon. Uh, feathers. Lives? You'll remember from our last episode that it is only the males who are so flamboyantly dressed. The females, by comparison, are quite plain. Likewise, it takes a male several years to mature, and until they do, they also lack the fancy feathers. Because of this, the feather trade only targeted mature males, while females and juveniles flew under the radar. You'll also remember that these birds are polygamous, where one male will mate with many females. Because of these two traits, it meant that the females were pretty much left alone, and as long as there were a few males for them to breed with, the population could quickly recover. And indeed, that's what happened. By and large, the birds of paradise came through the feather trade a far sight better than a lot of other birds did. So, if it wasn't mass slaughter that caused our lost birds to become, well, lost, what was it? To better understand the answer, maybe we should meet one of these birds, the regally named King of Holland's Bird of Paradise. Now, this bird is poorly named for a couple of reasons. First, European monarch on a New Guinea bird, it's not a great look. Second, there is no King of Holland. William III, for whom the bird was named, was the King of the Netherlands. It's like, if we're gonna do colonialism, can we at least do it right? Jeez. Sorry, I got distracted there. Where were we? Oh yes, the King of Holland's Bird of Paradise. Unlike some of the other birds I'll mention, 27 of these were recovered and sent to Europe, which, for the lost birds, is like a bonanza. Usually we're only talking about one or two that were ever found. Now, Holland's Paradise Bird is a gorgeous little thing. They have orange plumes with an iridescent green breast shield and a pair of delicate curly-cue tail streamers. They're 
only about the size of a starling, but they've got a pair of jewel-like fans that they can flash on their upper shoulders. They're a little treasure of a bird. The naturalist who first described them made the great mistake of taking his sample to William III to show the king his namesake bird. The king took a liking to it and, what with the whims of royalty, refused to ever return it. To this day, that specimen still resides in Amsterdam. Our old friend, Walter Rothschild, sorry, that's second Baron Rothschild to his friends, ended up with no fewer than ten of these birds in his collection. And yet, no one had ever studied a living one in the wild, and when the feather trade came to an end, no other specimen was ever found. So where did they go? Well, today, we've actually managed to work out where this lost bird got itself to. You see, the King of Holland's bird of paradise isn't a species unto itself. It's a hybrid. It's what you get when a magnificent bird of paradise mates with a king bird of paradise. If you were to take a close look at both parents, you'd see that it's kind of an amalgamation of both of them. Those shoulder fans it has are unique to the king bird. Its orange back is a blend of the yellow magnificent bird and the red king bird, and its green front is typical of the magnificent bird. For my money, though, the real giveaway is its tail, an almost perfect blend of the two. The kingbird has two long wire-like tail feathers that end in tightly coiled discs of green feathers, whereas the magnificent bird has two long curly wires without any feather filaments. In the King of Holland, we see something halfway between the two, with a curly tail that has green filaments at the end, but instead of a tight disc, they're loose and open. To really seal the deal, the kingbird and magnificent bird are also closely related and live in the same general area. So it would not be outlandish to suppose that the two would meet each other from time to time, and if one female should have a wandering eye, well, as they say in Vegas, what happens in the New Guinean cloud forest stays in the New Guinean cloud forest. So that explains why this bird was crossed off the official list, but it is for the same reason that the other 20 lost birds were as well. That's right, all the mysterious birds that were discovered during the feather trade were deemed to be hybrids that had arose through different combinations between the various legitimate species. Now, at this point, we must introduce an important player in our story. Erwin Stresman, the ornithologist rock star. You see, I told you there were famous ornithologists and you didn't believe me. Well, don't you look silly now because here's Erwin Stresman. Yeah, I know you've never heard of him. Stresman was one of the most influential ornithologists of his generation. He literally wrote the book on birds, aves, which at the time was the most comprehensive, all-encompassing account of birds, their behaviour, morphology, and evolution. So when I say he was the ornithologist rock star of the 1920s, you know I mean he was huge. When Stresman spoke, people listened, and in the 1920s, something was troubling him. He found it strange that of the 60 or so recognised birds of paradise, 40 were rather well documented, while 20 were only known from one or two trade skins. Why were they so rare? Now, 
As fate would have it, a chance encounter with our old friend, Walter Rothschild, oh, sorry, second Baron Rothschild to his friends, led to a specimen of one of these mysterious birds making its way to Berlin where Stresman worked. This bird, Mantu's rifle bird, was a beautiful little thing. As is typical with the rifle birds, it had a blue patch of iridescent feathers on its throat. It had a dark violet head with a jet black underside along with filamentous flank plumes. Now, held up in his office, Stresman looked long and hard at this bird, and he became convinced that it was no purebred bird, but the hybridised bastard offspring of the magnificent rifle bird and the twelve-wired bird of paradise. Once again, these two birds are closely related, and even in the wild, there has been documented cases of females visiting the display sites of the wrong male. Not that Stresman knew this at the time. And the more he looked, the more sure of himself he became. Mantu's rifle bird was a hybrid, the product of mismatched parents. But then, the wheels in his head began to turn. If this was true for one bird, then maybe it was true for all of them. So, he set about tracking down these oddball birds, examining their plumage, and comparing them to the well-known species. In the end, he became convinced that the origin of each of the 20 or so lost birds could be explained in this way. He published his theory, and the ornithology world kind of went, eh, sounds good. And so, those rare birds were all reclassified as hybrids, banished from the official list, never to be spoken of again. And, to Stresman's credit, his theory has stood the test of time. No bird he deemed to be a hybrid has ever been found since the feather trade ended, and no bird has ever been given back its official species status. And honestly, the theory has a lot going for it. When male birds of paradise display, they can become a bit... How would you say it? Overly keen to mates. Kind of like how a sex-crazed dog will hump any leg that walks past it, a male bird of paradise isn't all that different. It's been well documented that if a juvenile male gets too close to a displaying mature male, he may find himself on the receiving end of some unwelcomed advances, if you catch my drift. Young males that are yet to grow their mature plumes look rather like the female birds, and the mature male, his passions inflamed, never seems too bothered to stop and check if his latest admirer is a female or not. As we also mentioned in the last episode, female birds of paradise all look remarkably similar to each other as well. So it isn't inconceivable to think that if a female of the wrong species happened upon a displaying male and hung around, that one thing might lead to another. Of course, while this explanation is completely plausible, it's also difficult to know exactly how often it happens, and when it does, how often such matings lead to viable offspring. Nevertheless, it must happen because there's plenty of evidence. Many of these mysterious birds are unquestionably the result of mismatched parents, and there are some truly beautiful birds that carry the telltale signs of mixed heritage, or at least we assume they would have been beautiful in life. Sadly today, we only have their tatty preserved remains and an artist's impression to go off. The Astrapian sicklebill was one such stunning bird. It is believed to be the offspring of a black sicklebill and an... Arafak 
nailed that pronunciation, Astrapia. Now keep those two parents in mind, and we'll come back to them later. The Astrapian sicklebill was a dark, long-tailed bird. It had the broad, magnificent tail of an Astrapia, but with the beak and shoulder epaulets of the sicklebill. You'll also remember from last episode that it is the epaulets that the sicklebill uses in its mating display to transform its shape. To lend weight to the theory, not only does this odd bird share the traits of both parents, but both parents are relatively closely related, and both parents live in the same area of New Guinea. Another gorgeous example of a hybrid is Wilhelmina's bird of paradise. Only three specimens were ever collected, and it is suspected that they arose from a cross of the superb bird and the magnificent bird. A superb bird being the one that turns into a psychedelic smiley face. Wilhelmina's bird had metallic blue breast shield, just like the superb, yet with the shape and structure of the magnificent's breast shield, which is more of a pad shape. Likewise, its tail also shows signs of mixed heritage. The Magnificent, as mentioned, has two curly crossed wires, while the Superb has a rather normal tail. Wilhelmina's bird, by comparison, doesn't have the strong wires of the Magnificent, but it does have two prominent plumes that extend from its back, almost as if it were a toned-down version of the Magnificent's tail. Maybe my favourite lost bird of all, though, is Captain Blood's Bird of Paradise. I mean, listen to that name, Captain Blood! This hybrid is so rare that only one specimen was ever found. It's believed that Captain Blood's Bird of Paradise results from the pairing of a Blue and Ragiana's Bird of Paradise. A Ragiana is very similar to a Greater Bird of Paradise, but whereas the Greater has that stunning golden cascading fountain of plumes, the Ragiana is more russet in colouring. Blood's Bird of Paradise was discovered in 1904 by one Captain Neptune Blood. Again, what a name. The good captain had established a lucrative trade on the island where he captured many birds of paradise for zoos and aviaries. But then he stumbled on this odd bird, the size and shape of a blue bird of paradise, but with the russet colouring of the Ragiana. Given the utterly bizarre mating ritual of the blue bird, which as you will remember from last time, hangs upside down, pulsates its tail while emitting the oddest electrical hums and squawks. It makes one wonder how some other species would ever become so confused as to mate with it, especially when the females are so particular about the displays of their mates. And yet, there must have been at least one female with a kink for the unusual, because here's the evidence. And in the end, it was the rarity of these birds, along with the fact that so often they possessed characteristics intermittent between two well-known species, that was to be the nail in their coffin and the evidence the ornithological world needed to accept Stresman's theory. With the publication of his paper, the title loosely translates to Which Known Species of Paradise Are of Hybrid Origin?, these species were struck off the list, and that closed the chapter on these odd birds. Since then, they have been all but forgotten. Except, our story isn't quite finished. You see, Stresman may have been a little single-minded 
in his quest to include every mysterious and rare bird in his theory. Now, I must level with you, I have done a little cherry picking here. So far, I've only spoken about birds that are 100% hybrids, but there are many cases where the evidence is a little lacking. For example, the mysterious bird of Bubario, yes, that's its real name, looked similar to a sicklebill, but only one specimen was ever found, and its tail is missing, making it almost impossible to tell what it looked like alive and who its other parent may have been. Without another specimen, we'll just never know what its true nature is. But then there are other birds where Stresman may have been way off the mark. There are two in particular. Elliot's bird of paradise is the first. This is yet another long-tailed, epaulette-wearing black bird. Stresman believed it resulted from the coupling of a black sicklebill and an... Arafak, now that pronunciation, Astrapia. Ah, but you may recall that this is the same pair he suggested was behind the Astrapian sicklebill. At least you better recall, because I explicitly told you to, and if you're not going to listen to me, then why are you even here? Stresman didn't seem to mind the contradiction, though. But even if we ignore the fact that there is a doubling up happening, there are other problems. The collected specimens of Elliot's bird are all smaller than either of the proposed parents. It also has a lobe around its bill and an oddly shaped tail that neither of the parents have. To account for this, Stresman suggested another bird, the Paradiglia, may have been involved. It is unclear if Stresman thought this bird was a hybrid of a hybrid, or if there was some kinky menage a trois going on. You know, he kept things vague. But at any rate, rather than say this bird didn't quite fit his theory, Stresman seemed determined to account for every rare species, so he pressed on and declared it a hybrid. And a hybrid it may well be. But given the apparent inconsistencies, it is maybe premature to call things settled. For now, the best we can say is we just don't know what this bird's deal is. The second oddity is Rothschild's lobed billed bird of paradise, named after our old friend Walter, sorry, second Baron Rothschild to his friends. Only two specimens of this bird were ever found. Unlike Elliot's bird, that at least resembles a sickle bill, Rothschild's bird is unique in the sense that it doesn't really look like anything else. It's kind of like a superb bird, but with purple feathers, it's kind of like a paradiglia, but not. And it's also got a weird lobe around its bill. It's just a straight up strange bird. And no matter what pair of parents you pick to try and explain one set of traits, you end up with other traits you can't explain. So what does this mean? It's hard to say. So few examples of these birds were ever found. They were never seen alive and the specimens that we do have aren't in very good condition. Given their rarity and the tendency birds of paradise have to sometimes mate outside of their species, it is possible that they are hybrids. Equally possible though, given their inexplicable features, they may have been rare birds on the point of extinction when they were found and are now lost to the world forever. But there is maybe a third possibility. Somewhere in New Guinea's impenetrable forest-covered mountains, 
these birds still live? Maybe it's a long shot, but before I close, let me introduce you to one last bird, the bronze parotia. You'll remember from last time that the parotias are those tutu skirt-wearing birds that dance on the forest floor. Like many of the mysterious birds we've looked at today, the discovery of the bronze parotia follows the same story. It made its way to Europe during the height of the feather trade in 1897, and was given the name Burschelhepps, six-wide bird of paradise. Don't double-check my pronunciation. It was named, described, placed in a dusty drawer, and then quickly forgotten forever. At the time, only five specimens were ever collected, with three ending up in the collection of... You guessed it, Walter Rothschild, second Baron Rothschild to his friends. Now, Stresman never claimed that this bird was a hybrid, but just like our other birds, it was never witnessed in the wild, and another specimen never turned up after the collapse of the feather trade. It was as lost as the others. Then, in 2005, a team of scientists exploring the Fuja Mountains discovered it alive and well, hanging out in the remote mountain range where it had been doing its thang undetected for over a hundred years. On that same expedition, they even discovered another hitherto unknown species of honey eater, the wattled smoky honey eater. These discoveries give us some small cause to hope. Who knows what else might be hiding out there? It has happened once. Maybe it'll happen again. I do hope that somewhere in a remote corner of New Guinea, there is an oddly beautiful bird that has evaded humanity for over a hundred years. One day we may find it, and until then, they will remain a tantalising mystery of the avian world. So, that's the birds of paradise, but we've sort of touched on a tricky subject here. Animals that are defined as unique species aren't really supposed to breed with other species, at least not end up with children anyway. It's kind of one of the definitions of what makes a species a species. So the fact that you can get a hybrid sort of muddies the water. And it raises the question, what even is a species? And how do we decide what is and isn't one? And while we're at it, just how many species of bird are there? Spoiler alert, there are no good answers. But next time, we're going to try and untangle that very question. So I hope to see you all then. Is one bird, however often I release this podcast, not enough for you? Then I've got some good news. If you'd like a bird to arrive in your inbox every week, simply send an email to weekly.bird at outlook.com and I'll add you to the Bird of the Week mailing list. No ads, no subscriber fees, just beautiful birds flying at you each and every week. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. I actually need to level with you. I don't, I'm not friends with Walter Rothschild. He um, died about 100 years ago. Sorry if I misled you.